Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast was recorded live on Monday, October 28, 2019, and features Andrew Lambert discussing his book Sea Power States, Maritime Culture, Continental Empires, and the Conflict that Made the Modern World, which is the winner of the 2018 Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History at New York Historical Society. He is in conversation with historian Andrew Roberts, who served as chair of the 2018 Prize Judging Committee. So, uh, so, so give us the central thesis of this, uh, this, as I say, truly extraordinary history book. You will understand, of course, that we Englishmen drive on the other side of the road. (laughs) (laughs) At its heart, this is a book about a word and a phrase. So we're often told that countries are sea powers because they have large navies. But in the the 1890s, a very eminent American writer on history and strategy, Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan, took the original word sea power, one word, in Greek, and split it into two, making it a phrase. And he said that he did this for effect, that it would make it seem more important, because in 1890, not too many people in America thought they needed much of a navy. And as a naval officer, he rather wanted them to change their minds. But he was doing something else. He was separating the rationale for having a big navy from the identity of the state that was going to purchase and run it. So a sea power, one word, if we go back to the ancient Greeks, if we go back to Thucydides, to the Peloponnesian War, uh, and the dawn of thinking about society and power, Thucydides tells us that a sea power, one word, is a state which is subsumed by the sea. It exists on the sea. Its power is at sea. Its main interests are economic, commercial. It will have an overseas empire of trade, and it will control that trade by using a powerful professional standing navy. And what Thucydides also tells us is that this is a very dangerous thing to do because in order to mobilize this amount of power, you actually have to include a lot of people in the political decision-making process. The birth of democracy and the birth of sea power states are pretty much at the same point in time. Athens becomes a democracy, and the Democrats then vote to build a great navy, which they use to defeat the Persians at the Battle of Salamis, and then they use it to create an overseas empire which funds the Athenian state. It pays for the navy, and it allows the Athenian navy to be a professional standing navy when everybody else has ships without any professional crew. So when the war starts, the Athenians are always going to win because they've shaped their country to support a particular form of power. They're not competing with their Spartan peer group. They're not competing with the Persians. They are using an asymmetric approach to the world. Mahan is saying, actually, you can just build a big navy, even in a continental country like the United States, Imperial Germany, other peer competitors. And the book is really about that divergence and separating out the states that were of the sea from the states that merely had military power at sea. 
one word for the states, two words for the countries that were building great navies. And one of the inspirations for this was an American approach to this subject, which kind of conflated these two things and assumed that having a big professional navy made you a sea power state. It doesn't. It makes you militarily very powerful at sea, but that does not make you a sea power state. So it's really a play on two words. It's a play on how people use words, and it's a, opening up a whole way of thinking about the emergence of the modern world. And it opens up questions, of course, of the relevance to the modern day. Um, you talk about, uh, about Holland and Genoa and Venice and the great and Britain and the great sea power, sea power states. Um, but uh, what relevance does this um, thesis, very compelling thesis, uh, have to our, our world today? Today we live in a world where the one great power navy belongs to the United States and it is the navy that leads a kind of Western liberal collective looking out for the values that the West, the liberal economic commercial trading world holds so dear. But there is a disconnect between that instrument of power and the ideology of being a sea power state. The United States is not really a sea power state. It's a very large continental state, which has a very powerful professional navy. And so part of the concern is, how is that going to work going forward? Because we know that in the past, the United States has lost interest in the sea in periods of its history. The United States his Navy's history is not linear. It, it has some bumps in the road. It, it drops down and picks up again. And at the same time, we're looking at a rising navy in the People's Republic of China. And the Chinese are talking about being a sea power. They don't mean what I mean by sea power. They mean what Mahan means. And they want to have a large navy and use that as a political instrument. But when continental countries with totalitarian governments acquire this kind of naval strength, they use it to close down markets, close down trade, close down access. And historically, they've done this over and over again. They impose a universal monoculture uh, over the region they rule over. They impose economic measures which constrain trade and direct it through specific mechanisms which are under the control of the state. And we're seeing this now. The Chinese will tell you about their One Belt, One Road project to build a railway from Beijing to Central Europe um, to funnel trade through Central Asia into Europe uh, and to avoid the necessity to use the sea, which they cannot control. So we're looking at very different ideological rationales for having a navy, and this has a very deep history. So it's about making sure we don't assume that what's happening today is in any way novel. Some of the technology is very novel, but the underlying ideologies are not novel, and we can understand better the questions we need to ask of our own leaders and of other countries if we think about how we arrived here today. What were the most surprising aspects of, of this book? What surprised you most in the course of uh, researching and writing it? I think I'd have to go back to the section of the book that deals with the Dutch Republic. Everybody knows that the Dutch had a great sea power empire. They were one of the pioneers of European expansion into the West Indies, into... South America, into Africa, into, into the Indian Ocean and beyond, all the way out to China and Japan. And yet the Dutch Sea Power Empire is exactly coexistent with a 
a thing that we all know as students or consumers of, of culture as the Dutch Golden Age. The age of Rembrandt is the age of the Dutch Sea Power Empire, and the two things are intimately connected because the people who paid Rembrandt and the other Dutch masters to paint were the burghers of Amsterdam who were making a fortune out of running the maritime economic aspect of a sea power empire. They ruled the Dutch Republic for 20 years. From 1652 to 1672, the Dutch were at the pinnacle of their power in that period at sea. And it all collapses in absolute ruins in 1672 because the continental hegemonic power of France invades and conquers most of the Dutch Republic. The Dutch throw out their existing government and all of their interest in the sea. They raise a very large army and they drive the French back out of their country. And that is the end of the Dutch Republic as a great power sea power. They were forced to hand in all of the assets of being a sea power to defend their country because they had a land border with the French. What happened to that sea power? It drifted across the North Sea to the English, who did not have a land border with the French. And the English were able to do with Dutch approaches to business methods, to state formation, to financial structures. Indeed, the English even hired all of the best Dutch marine artists to come and paint English ships, defeating Dutch <laughs> ships. Um, much as in international football, you buy your players from around the world. And, you know, so we bought the best Dutch artists, and English marine painting is actually Dutch marine painting done by Englishmen. Um, so the passing of the baton was remarkably swift. Uh, 1672, the Dutch lose this prize. By 1690, the English have firmly grasped it and will keep hold of it for another 200 years. So that very short duration. But if you're in Amsterdam, you can read the glory of the Dutch Republic at a point when they didn't have a military leader, they didn't spend their money on the army, they built a huge town hall in the middle of Amsterdam. It's now called the Royal Palace. And it's a classical temple to being a sea power. And on the ground floor in the public space is a double globe map of the world pointing out all the bits the Dutch own. <laughs> you, it, this um, book, of course, as uh, Jim was saying, uh, covers 2,000 years. And there are some periods where there aren't, there are long periods, centuries, where there are no great super, uh, sea power states. But, um, but obviously they're, they're ones that geographically and historically um, do span an extraordinary amount of time. What prompted you to want to write something quite this comprehensive? All books start somewhere. Um, and if you live long enough, you probably remember where they started. This book started in November 1987 in Venice. Um, it, it, it was uh, my wife and I's honeymoon. Uh, we were in Venice. Neither of us had ever been. We were enjoying being in Venice. And if you think about issues of naval power, history, diplomacy, walking around Venice is going to help you to think more clearly about what a sea power is. Everybody who's been to Venice knows it's very small, it's very wet, uh, and there are no roads. Uh, this is the acme of what it means to be a sea power. A small mud bank that was turned into the most prosperous city in Europe by some outsiders. The Venetians are not really Italians. They're halfway connected with the Byzantines. They trade with the Islamic Middle East. They're interested in Chinese goods. They're bringing over ideas from China, like pasta and silk. They're creating something which is completely distinct. The city's 
built architecture tells us this. And the great 19th century English writer on Venice, John Ruskin, says, look, you know, the Venetians built a sea power city. They built something that doesn't look like anybody else's city. Not only is it on the sea, but it's actually in the sea. And the way these buildings are designed, you go to Venice, you look at the Doge's Palace, you think, that's really strange. It's a copy of an Islamic audience hall in Cairo. It's not a European building at all. The Venetians are very Catholic in the wider sense, so they're picking up cues from everywhere. And when the Pope says, look, you must stop trading with the Muslims because we'll excommunicate you if you don't, the Venetians say, look, we don't care. We trade with the Muslims. That's our business model. So you can excommunicate us if you like. The Venetians were never Roman Catholics. They were Venetian Catholics. <laughs> um, and their basilica next to the Doge's Palace isn't a Latin church at all. It's a Byzantine Orthodox church. So they're hedging their bets, uh, as all good merchants do. They're a very canny group of, of individuals, and they know that the only way to be a great power, if you're as small as Venice, is to put every last thing you've got into the sea. So Venetians didn't serve in the army, whether you were an officer or of the, in the enlisted ranks, you served in the navy. The Venetians wanted soldiers, they hired them from the mainland. The Venetians didn't want to be involved in land fighting. They ruled the sea, and that was their advantage. They could not compete on land. They understood their limits, and that's the great thing about sea powers. They know what they can do, and if they're wise, they know what they can't do. And the ones that lose the grip of how grand they are are the ones that come to a sticky end. And how long did it take you to write, uh, to write this book? So 1987, the ideas start to gel, but it, it does take until last year to finish the thing because there is a lot of history there and there are a lot of great historians who've written outstanding work in this field and it would be very remiss to engage with these subjects without engaging with very large bodies of literature, uh, the history of, of civilizations, the history of particular countries, the history of art, the history of architecture... So one of the things that pleased me most among the reviews for the book uh, was somebody who disagreed with, I think, pretty much everything I'd said. Um, <laughs> uh, but he is Spanish. Um, <laughs> and, and I had said that Spain was never a sea power, so he, he wished to disagree with that. Uh, but he focused in on the way that I'd used the history of art to open up ideas about sea power culture. Sea powers have... A culture which is suffused with the sea. They build sea buildings. They use particular structures. They build temples to ships. One of the things that gives away the United States not really being a sea power, they don't build dockyard buildings that say very much more than this is a building to put things in. The Dutch, the British, the Athenians, the Carthaginians, the Venetians, they build fabulous places which are essentially temples to sea power. And, this, and that Spanish chap, he doesn't have a point. I mean, Spain did have a huge uh, Spanish empire. You don't have Portugal down as a sea power either, whereas no. one thinks of Henry the Navigator and so on. Uh, is there a, a, what's your um, theory behind them? Well, there's, a, there's a great phrase that I think covers both of the, the Iberian powers who are pioneers of European overseas expansion. They are sea-born empires. These are great continental states, or in the case of Portugal, not really very great continental states, that use the sea to acquire overseas continental possessions. They want to rule land. They want to extract resources, gold, 
primary products, things like sugar. They're not really interested in trade. They are, in fact, restrictive and anti-trade. They restrict trade to their own interests. They won't let others trade into their system. And the key for this is to look at the history of Portugal. Uh, Spain is very similar. These are both countries made by the Reconquista, by the wars against the Moorish kingdoms in the south of Spain. They want to extend that war across into North Africa. So the Portuguese empire was created and run to raise funds for the invasion and conquest of parts of North Africa. And in 1578, the king of Portugal, Dom Sebastian, raised a huge army using all the money he could find, mercenaries, Portuguese nobility. They invaded Morocco. That was going to be the answer to Portugal's problem. It would give them a large resource base. It would give them lots of food. It would really change the strategic nature of Portugal. It was a continental project. It ended catastrophically. The Moroccans decided they didn't want to be Portuguese, and they slaughtered the entire Portuguese army. And if you go to the monastery of the Geronimus in, in Belém, just outside Lisbon, they still have a place for King Sebastian because they never found his body. And they're still waiting for him to come back. And that tells you what the Portuguese empire was about. It was about land. And the sea was merely a vehicle to get you to the land. And Spain is the same. They never engaged in the sea as the core of their power. They saw the land as the core of their power, even if they were traveling by sea. The French overseas empire is very similar. These are empires not of the sea. They're empires that use the sea merely to connect, to control restricted market spaces across the oceans. And yet, uh, the British had India, of course. Does that not um, knock us out as a sea power state? The case of India is very interesting. India is the exception in Britain's situation as a maritime power. For most of the history of Britain and India, India was run by the East India Company, which was a chartered company. Its primary responsibility to the English crown was to raise money and, more importantly, bring home high-grade saltpeter to make gunpowder. English gunpowder was always better than everybody else's because Indian saltpeter was by far the best. If you want a more bang for your buck, you've got your saltpeter from India. <laughs> the British state took over India later, in, in the late 1850s, by which time the British Empire has reached its apogee and is beginning to think about consolidation and ends up taking on India as a continental project. But this was a serious mistake. Britain is not a continental imperial state. Its empire is of trade routes, of port cities, of communication hubs, and the free flow of goods. The English spend most of the 19th century opening up markets, famously in China, in parts of Latin America, and falling out with countries that have high and restrictive tariffs against trade. All of Britain's 19th century wars are against countries that are anti-trade and are suppressing markets. The British defend Turkey against Russia because the Russians will close the Turkish market, which the British enjoy, and will spread the control of markets as far as they possibly can. It's not what the Russians are doing territorially that bothers the British, it's what they're doing economically. So sea power empires are engaged in trade and they need more trade and they use their navies to secure that trade. The Royal Navy is a trade protection system. It's there to make sure the ships get through. It's there to make sure that foreign countries that have borrowed large amounts of capital pay their bills. Um, this is a different kind of navy in many ways to the navy of a continental power.
and, and which brings us on to modern day America, of course. Since 1945, America's had by far the largest navy in the world. Um, so that, that, in your thesis, knocks out, despite that, knocks out America as a, as a sea power, or a sea superpower in this case. One of the things that struck me going through the long history of this subject was that in every age, the continental hegemonic power was opposed to the sea power states. So we go back to ancient Athens. The real enemy for Athens is Persia, a vast continental military empire uh, with a navy of satellites. And right the way through, the same patterns emerge. The Roman Republic is not a navy a sea power, it's a continental military power that rubs out every other state in the Mediterranean and achieves utter dominance by annihilation. 1945, the baton passes between Britain and, and the United States in terms of naval hegemony, but it's not a level transfer. It's not from one sea power state to another. It's the British Empire which is finished, it's bankrupt in 1945. The British are simply unable to sustain this empire. Not that they had any long-term plans to do so anyway. And they literally say to the Americans, well, you're going to have to do this. Uh, there's a moment in time during the Greek Civil War, during the creation of modern Israel, when the British say, look, we just don't have the resources to do this anymore. Uh, we've spent all of our money on two world wars. We're just going to drop back. Much as the Dutch did, much as the Venetians did, when your days as a great power are over, you have to recognize this and step back uh, and draw down on your commitments. And the Americans, who played a large part in bringing down the British Empire, their opposition to overseas territorial empires was quite significant. Um, they seem to have no objection to continental empires, uh, those of Russia and China, for example, uh, but they were very objecting to the British overseas empire, the remnants of the Dutch and French overseas empires. So the Americans were changing the, the rules on which empires were operating, and the sea power empire model was finished and the British stood back from it. You, um, you equate all the way through this book, one of the fascinating political aspects of it is that you equate uh, sea power states with um, the spread of uh, freedom of speech, of democracy, of free trade, free enterprise, and so on. Um, the, uh, the sort of best part of the Enlightenment, even pre-Enlightenment, seems to come from sea power states. Would you like to talk about that a little? So again, democracy, freedom of speech, these are things we all think of as really important. But we have to remember that there are large parts of the world where they do not think these things are important. And they tend to be continental hegemonic states. Uh, we can think of at least two in the modern world who would like to shut the internet down permanently. Um, when the Athenians developed the democracy, this is an open public discourse, and they're using the democracy as a strategic weapon. Why do the Spartans start the Peloponnesian War? Because the Athenians are spreading democracy, and they're altering the balance of power in Greece against the autocratic governments and in favour of the democratic. So for the Athenians, democracy is in many ways more powerful than the fleet. The fleet spreads democracy. Democracy then reinforces Athenian power, because the democracies of Greece align themselves with Athens for political survival. And that's been a pattern that repeats over and over again. So the spread of these ideas becomes the primary weapon. 
In the 19th century, Britain and Russia have what looks for all the world like a very serious Cold War. And the front line is the Russians' absolute block on the import of any British printed material. The Russians are petrified that their own people will find out what life is like on the other side of what we might call an Iron Curtain. And nothing has changed. How did the Cold War end? People in Eastern Europe discovered life was better in the West. And, and those values could be spread more effectively by the print media, uh, by more modern media methods than they could by the sword or indeed the warship. So democracy is in many ways the single most important weapon of the sea power state, the spread of those ideas. We remember the ideas, but we forget how powerful and dangerous they are if you're sitting in another great capital city. Louis XIV didn't invade the Dutch Republic just because they were Calvinist republics. They were also printing a lot of things that he absolutely disagreed with. And they were challenging the very basis of his rule. Uh, royal absolutism and Dutch philosophy do not sit well together because the Dutch spent most of their philosophical musings working out how to get rid of their own ruling house uh, and to have a proper republic. So we're looking at the weaponization of democracy. And at the moment, we're looking at protests in Hong Kong, which are about very similar issues. And why does Hong Kong think it's different to the rest of China? Uh, it's a British legacy. And, and, and part of a once sea power state. Um, are there, uh, quite a lot of this book is about war. Uh, an awful lot of it isn't. It's about culture and about economics and so on. But a lot is about war. Would you say that sea power states are inherently less or more violent, uh, more aggressive, or it, it is, are they, do they not have anything inherent in them with regard to warfare that is different from a um, hegemonic um, continental state? Yeah, no, thank you. Sea power states emphasize the use of naval power. Uh, they very often don't emphasize the use of it in violent means. So the sea powers were pioneers of what we would call deterrence. The Athenians kept their fleet at sea in peacetime to persuade everybody else that it really wasn't worth fighting them. Uh, in much the same way that we, we send nuclear uh, missile armed submarines to sea just to make sure that nobody attacks us, the Athenians sent their fleet cruising around the coast of Greece just to show the flag and point out that it really wasn't worth coming out uh, and fighting because they were too strong and too effective. So what sea power states mostly want is to be left alone, to make money, to trade, not to be interfered with. But if you push them into a corner, uh, and this does happen occasionally, they will fight, and they will fight with an asymmetric approach. The Athenians don't fight the Spartans on land. They hide behind their fortress walls because they know they can't win that battle. And they attack the Spartan economy. And they do very well by attacking the weakness of the Spartans, which is economic, and avoiding their strength, which is military. So they tend to be more sophisticated. They tend to think not about force on force, but on using force where it will be most advantageous to emphasize their own strength and to minimize the risk of their own weakness. So if we look at the Athenians, yes, they're successful at sea. But when they lose command of the sea, it's all over, and the Athenian Empire is finished. So there's, I think, a very strong correlation between economic success and the use of force for deterrence. And if pushed, the key is that sea power states will have a better quality 
of naval power than their continental rivals. It's winning that battle at sea. The foundation myth of the English state is the battle against the Spanish Armada in 1588. How did the English, a small offshore island of heretics, win this battle? They put all of their money, all of their guns, all of their gunpowder into the, the naval force. They had a motley ragtag army of militiamen who would have stood no chance had the Spanish landed. They won the battle at sea, and that's where they put all their effort. So again, it's about putting all of your resources as a small, relatively weak state into the place where they'll be most effective. The Venetians do this, the Athenians, the British, the Dutch, uh, the Carthaginians, all of them. They all use mercenary armies. They all think about armies as subordinate to navy. If your navy is your primary fighting service, the Royal Navy is the senior service in Britain, that tells you a great deal about the nature of your state, about the nature of your strategy, about the way you've structured your state, and about what you anticipate in war. Being able to win the naval battle is critical. It's not optional. If you lose the naval battle, you're finished. All of these sea power states, when they lose the naval battle, it's over. It's completely over. Well, actually, that brings us on to the first question uh, from the audience, which uh, we've, got some, um, we've got some good questions here. The first one is, what were the root causes of decline for the sea power states you researched? Right. We could be here quite a long time with that one. That's a very good question. Well, I'm not going to allow you to be here. Good. Well, let's, <laughs> let's look at one of the sea power states quickly and just get an overview of how that works. Let's go, let's go back to Venice. What happened to the Venetian economic model? They controlled the trade between the East, through the Middle East, into Europe, and they made a fortune out of it. First, the Ottoman Turks captured... Byzantium and overthrew the Byzantine Empire, which was one of Venice's two trading partners in the Middle East. The other one was the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt. And the Venetians were able to keep these two markets in play and to keep prices down. And then 500 years after the capture of Byzantium, the Ottomans also captured Egypt. There was now a single hegemonic great power that controlled Venice's access to the goods that it relied on for its economic model. It could no longer raise windfall profits to pay for a hugely expensive navy. It was going to have to change its business model, and that change ultimately meant dropping out of being a great power and resorting increasingly to terrestrial activity, to manufacturing and new kinds of business. So the Venetians lost their critical advantage, and that's where it all went. And you'll find the same with others. The Athenians lost it in war. The Venetians lost it in commerce. The Carthaginians were completely annihilated by the Romans who were petrified of their political model. So different sea powers lose it in different ways. What happened to Britain? They ended up fighting the First World War with a massive army, which did huge damage to Britain as an economic power. And they ended up fighting the Second World War basically by borrowing and mortgaging everything they had and ended up completely bankrupt and were in no position to resume trade on the old model. They simply sacrificed everything in two world wars. So the economic fundamentals are critical, uh, but you can lose it all in a battle at sea as well, and different sea powers lose it in different ways. Um, in your research, who are the leaders you feel most effectively employed the sea power of their uh, nation-state? Excellent question. 
the first I thought the last question was rather good as well. Yeah, this, <laughs> uh, this is an excellent one. It's, it's high it's, quality. It's, it's slightly easier to answer. <laughs> the first great statesman of sea power is Themistocles, who uses the Athenian navy to defeat the Persian invasion, and also his political rivals in Athens. This is deeply political at all levels. Sea power is not a national choice, it's a political choice. He's succeeded by Pericles, who takes the Athenians into the Peloponnesian War, a brilliant political strategist uh, who sadly died of the plague and his strategy unraveled after that. Uh, the others who particularly I find particularly engaging are Hannibal, uh, often thought of because we've all read the Roman version as some kind of psychopathic battle-winning hero. Hannibal is a careful, calculating political operator. He doesn't want to destroy Rome. He wants the Romans to be no more powerful than the other great powers of the Mediterranean world. He wants to build a coalition to restrain the rise of Rome to universal monarchy. What happens after his death? Rome becomes a universal monarchy. And the Romans chase him to his death. So Hannibal ends up as the Che Guevara of the ancient world. He's the, he's the resistance leader against the total hegemonic power of Rome. The other one who stands out for me is William III, first as stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, defeating Louis XIV and driving him out of the Dutch Republic, and then as joint ruler of England, taking the sea power model across the North Sea into England, creating a constitutional monarchy with very sophisticated tax raising and borrowing facilities, which enabled England, later Britain, to become the sea power hegemon of the 18th, 19th, and first half of the 20th century. And Hannibal and William III are doing the same thing. They can see the inevitable rise of the hegemonic power, and they do everything they can to resist. Hannibal fails, William succeeds. So those are great sea power leaders. They're not themselves admirals, they're not heavily involved in the navy, but they absolutely understand how to use the tools that gives you to defeat much larger, richer, and more powerful states. The, the next three actually are pretty much the same question, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to read them all three out because they're, um, they're all asking much the same thing. Um, how do you see technology transforming the way naval war is fought? In the age of cyber war and drones, does sea power um, dominance still have the critical importance it once had? And given the development and deployment of anti-ship ballistic missiles, such as China's DF-21, are supercarriers like HMS Queen Elizabeth and the USS Gerald Ford becoming irrelevant? Right, excellent. Most of those questions are, are naval warfare questions. And the Chinese have missiles, the Americans have aircraft carriers. It's an obvious response. Uh, this doesn't change the fundamentals of being a sea power. Being a sea power is being engaged with the sea, being internationally economically driven, being focused on external trade, and being a particular kind of state. Uh, China is not going to become a sea power state by building missiles. Uh, while it remains a large continental empire, it will never be a sea power state. But sea power as strategy is changing, but the advantage of command of the sea remains exactly what it always has been. The Chinese get all of their hydrocarbons from the Middle East. Uh, the Indian Navy, on its own, could stop them getting those. The Chinese economy could be stopped in its tracks by India. And India is just one of many Western liberal states which has a serious navy. If the Chinese ever put their fleet to sea to fight, they would run into the Japanese, who would almost certainly sink them. Um, the Americans might turn up a bit later because they're a bit further away. 
I put this to the Chinese. They said, when are we going to become the next sea power? You know, like you gave it to the Americans and when are they going to give it to us? I said, never. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we were bankrupt and we understood the limits of being a small country. Um, America is not bankrupt and it's not small. Um, and if you want to take it from them, you'll have to kill them all. And I wouldn't start that process now because, you know, you're not in a position to do that. Uh, they said, but what about the great naval battle? I said, well, the Japanese will win that, um, like they did last time. Uh, and the Americans might rescue some of your sailors. And they confess <laughs> that they do not see themselves as peer competitors. Building a ballistic missile to fire at an American, or indeed a British aircraft carrier, is a confession of abject failure. Because if the Chinese ever fire a ballistic missile at a British or an American aircraft carrier, that is the start of World War III. Because no British or American politician and statesman is going to wait to find out what's on the end of that missile. That is a strategic weapon you've just launched at the sovereign territory of your own country. That is an act of war. The Chinese will not do that. This is a bluff. What the Chinese want is for us to leave them alone so they can consolidate and extend their territorial area of, uh, out into what is wrongly called the South China Sea. It's the Western Pacific Basin uh, in technical terms, an area which they lay claim to by manufacturing artificial islands out of the territory of other smaller sovereign states. Uh, the way to do this, deal with them, the Chinese, is not missiles or indeed aircraft carriers, although they're very useful backups, it's to make sure you've got your legal position very clear and to uphold the law. The Chinese will bend the law, and they're very good at it. They call it lawfare. It's easier than warfare. It's cheaper, uh, and you can use clever people rather than real power. We have to be cleverer than they are. And this argument goes back to the dawn of time. The Athenians are arguing about the law of the sea with their rivals. The Dutch and the British are having furious battles about this, and the Dutch are using the law to question the Iberian Empire's right to rule the seas. So the law is critical. We have to widen our perspective and not think about fighting. We have to think about defeating the enemy's attempt to undermine the validity of our business model. So we're all part of a Western liberal collective that does profit from global free trade. And some countries are more engaged with this and are still sea states others less so, but we would all suffer greatly if this system collapsed. And that would be the objective of the Chinese, the Russians, and some other people, non-state actors, who really don't like the whole liberal democratic value system of the Western liberal world. Do you think the types of vessels different maritime empires used shaped their imperialism? Again, interesting question. The Royal Navy, I'll start with that because I think it's a very good example, for most of its history is essentially a cruiser navy. It's a navy of ships designed to patrol the sea lanes and protect trade. Its primary mission is the protection of ocean-going shipping, upon which the British depend not just for prosperity, but for their food supply. Since around the time of the American Revolution, Britain has been a net importer of food and has not been able to feed its own population without importing food. Therefore, the primary mission of the Navy is to protect trade. Let's go through to the 1920s, 30s, the interwar period. The two great navies of the world, the Royal Navy, the United States Navy, they're building different navies. The Americans are thinking about a one-on-one -on -one fight with Imperial Japan. The British are thinking about protecting global trade. 
they're quite happy to have a fight with any of their peer competitors if necessary, but they're thinking about global trade. And the big Anglo-American argument in the interwar period is about cruisers. The British build cruisers to protect trade. The Americans build cruisers to fight battles. And they're very different ships. You, you can use the same name, but they are not the same piece of equipment. They are very, very different. So the Royal Navy is constantly engaged in a global trade defence system. And then the war breaks out and it repurposes its ships to engage in that war. But Britain's largest battle in the Second World War isn't some titanic land struggle. It's not a war in the air. It's called the Battle of the Atlantic. And if the British lose the Battle of the Atlantic, they're finished. It's over. They've, they've lost. They will be starved out. The Germans don't have to invade Britain. If they cut the maritime communications, we have to surrender. That simple. So we need to get food in from North America. We need to get other things from all around the world. And if we can't do that, we can't carry on. So cruiser navy versus battle navy. You'll see that with the Carthaginians and the Romans. The Carthaginians build cruisers. The Romans build battleships. That's why the Romans win a lot of those battles. They have bigger ships. And all they want is a battle. They're not interested in trade. They don't do much trade. The Carthaginians live on trade and the Romans cut the trade, and that's the end of Carthage. So different navies build different kinds of ships. They have different personnel. Sea power state navies have long-service volunteer crews. Continental navies have short-service conscript crews. And any sailor will tell you that somebody who's been at sea for a year is not a sailor. Yeah. You can make a soldier pretty quickly, but you can't make a sailor that quickly. You need a much longer period of time. So if you're putting your money into long-service, professional seafaring skills in your Navy, that's a pretty good sign that you're going to win the next war. It's certainly true of Churchill. He said that the only thing that kept him awake at night was the Battle of the Atlantic. No other aspect of the Second World War ever worried it's, him to anything like the same degree. As it's worth was. noting that he only said that in the 1950s. Uh, he certainly didn't say it during the Second World War. No, God, no. He'd be insane to tell anyone that. Can you uh, discuss the role of sea power states in the spread of the slave trade from Africa? And also, actually, whilst you're at it, at the um, defeat of the slave trade, I suppose, as well. Right. Yes, from, from the beginning of Iberian empire building in the New World, these are resource extracting empires and they are using up the populations that they're inheriting in the Caribbean and in uh, South and Latin America. So we see the, the growth of a transatlantic slave trade, which is carried initially by the Iberians themselves and then is subcontracted out as the Dutch, the British, the French um, become engaged in this trade and all of them end up running slave-based economies in the West Indies. And this system persists and, and extends until the end of the 18th century when first Denmark, uh, which has its own slave colonies, and then Britain abolished the Atlantic slave trade. And while the Danes don't have much of a navy, the British do, and the British spend the next 50 years destroying the Atlantic slave trade, despite the opposition of pretty much every other country on Earth. Uh, all of those countries that are still using large-scale slave economies, uh, the British end up in the late 1840s using their cruisers to destroy Brazilian slaving vessels in Brazilian harbours. So the British 
risk their relationship with a very large market, because Brazil is a, is a very big customer of Britain, by literally stopping the Brazilians trading in slaves, because otherwise the whole system will just carry on. Brazil is the last country of any consequence to abolish the slave trade, uh, which happens a little later. So the British spend a large amount of money, they sacrifice a lot of lives, and all they can do is limit supply because while the demand persists, it is impossible to eradicate the supply. There will always be somebody who is prepared to take the risk to deliver increasingly high-priced cargoes of enslaved peoples across the Atlantic. When does the, when does the Atlantic slave trade end? It ends around 1865, which is a date everybody in this audience uh, will be thinking about. Uh, the abolition of slavery in the New World, in the North and in the center of the Americas is critical. At that point, the British switched their effort from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of Africa, where they continue fighting the Asian slave trade until well into the 20th century. And to this day, Royal Navy warships are still conducting patrols dealing with human trafficking and the movement of people against their will across the ocean. So this hasn't gone away. This isn't a historical phenomenon this is a real-world activity that is ongoing. Uh, I don't know if the news came across the Atlantic, but only this week, uh, 38 people who were being smuggled into Britain in the back of a refrigerated container died. So many of these people will have paid huge amounts of money, or some of them are being trafficked as forced labour. So this hasn't gone away. It's a real-world problem. And the more we think about the eradication of the slave trade in the 19th century, uh, the more likely it is we can get our heads around how to deal with the 21st century variant, because it's real. It's a real threat, and people are dying, not just out there, but on the streets of my country and other countries in the West as well. This is still a serious problem. Last question. If China were to become a sea power, what would a sea power state, what would a world with Chinese-controlled seas look like? Right. So if China ruled the seas, um, my first answer to that is that's never going to happen. Um, China is a continental empire, and its primary concern is to rule over its subject peoples. A lot of those people in what we call China are not Chinese, and they don't want to live in China. Um, the Uyghurs in the West are just one of many minority groups. China would have to refocus itself completely. So a continental state like China has its capital a long way from the sea. Beijing is the capital of a nomadic horse-riding power. It's not the capital of a sea power. Sea power capitals are on the coast. So you would have to move the capital to Shanghai or Hong Kong maybe. Um, which has the right political model for a sea power. China would have to liberalise. It would have to become a functioning democracy. It would have to enlist the people of trade, of capital, of industry into a political system that gave them all access to the levers of power. It's a totalitarian empire. It's a one-party state ruled by an emperor. So that isn't going to happen. And anything they're doing at sea at the moment is about distracting us from what's going on inside China. You know, the story of China today is, is a, a straight take on the original sequence of Star Wars. You know, <laughs> there is a new emperor, you know? Um, he hasn't called himself the emperor yet, but that's what he's about. And at some stage, the emperor will show his hand 
and we will live in a different world. But China's agenda is not going to sea. It's staying in control of the terrestrial and using the sea to keep us at a distance. Ladies and gentlemen, what a masterclass in history. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.